0: Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Glad that you are with us. Uh, we have spent the last few months in the book of First John, and uh, we will pick that up after the holidays. But we typically take a little bit of a break uh, during the holiday season in order to cover something that's a little bit more uh, kind of Christmassy in uh, in regards to the text. And so we will be in uh, in John today, not uh, not First John, not the Epistle of John, but the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse verse 14, as we just read. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a little uh, story. Some of you have heard it before, some of you haven't, but a couple of years ago, uh, I was in Romania with a couple of buddies, and uh, so Carl, our family minister, was there, and then Carl's son, Taylor, was uh, with us. And at the time, Taylor was around 15 or so, and our translator driver named uh, Andre was also a teenager, a little bit uh, older than Taylor, but they kind of struck up a friendship, And uh, and so one day we are driving back uh, and uh, we're driving back to the hotel from uh, being out at conferences uh, all day. And so I'd been teaching and all that kind of stuff. I'm tired. And uh, and, uh, meanwhile, Taylor and Andre are just talking, you know, all the things that teenagers talk about. Hula hoops and roller skating and you know all those kind of things and uh, and so they're talking and I just want them to stop talking so I can take a nap but they don't and uh, and so eventually their talk migrates into uh, moving pictures movies and they tar- start talking about what are your favorite uh, movies and uh, and so Taylor said his one of his favorite movies was Goodwill Hunting and uh, and Andre said I've never seen it what's it uh, what's it about. And so Taylor begins to tell the story, and he says, well, it's about this high-functioning autistic kid. At that point, I interrupt and say, wait, 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 Will's a genius, but he's not like an autistic savant or something like that. And, uh, and so, Taylor actually argued with me and said, no, 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 he's actually autistic. And I said, no, that's not actually part of the story whatsoever. And we actually had to ask Carl, Taylor's dad. And uh, he only actually agreed to let it go once his dad said, just right, he's not actually autistic in the movie. So, he said, okay, whatever. And so, he picks up the story again. He says, well, anyway, there's this genius, and he looks over at me, gives this weird look, and uh, he says, who, who works at Harvard? And I said, wait, it's not Harvard, it's MIT. And, uh, and so anyway, the story goes on like this the entire time. By the end of the story, I, I wonder, has Taylor even seen this quote-unquote favorite movie? Turns out he'd only actually seen it uh, once. Uh, the reason I tell you that story is because uh, he knew the story and did he get all kinds of details wrong. And I think of that when I think of the Christmas story. Everybody knows the Christmas story. If you grew up uh, in the U.S., certainly, uh, but if you grew up in church, then you're familiar with the Christmas story, and yet it's amazing the number of details that we get wrong. The number of things we simply assume or presume, uh, the number of things that we simply speculate on. And so I'm going to tell the story, and I want you to just count sort of the red flags here of things that are actually extra biblical details that someone has just invented over time. So first, uh, you have Mary and Joseph. By the way, that's not made up, all right? But Mary and Joseph, and so they are going down to Bethlehem. And how do they get there? Everybody knows that Mary rode what? A donkey. Where's that mentioned in Scripture? nowhere, right? She could have ridden a horse. She could have ridden a, a, a buggy and carriage or something like that. She could have walked. We don't know how she actually got there, but eventually they do get there. And then we know that uh, she goes and there's no room for them in the inn, The problem with that is that the, the Greek word in Luke 2 there is not actually a word for an inn, like if you would think Holiday Inn or Motel 6 or something like that. The word there in Greek is actually just a word for a guest room. So don't think of staying at Embassy Suites or the Radisson. Think instead, you're going to your grandmother's house, you're going to stay there in her spare bedroom, and your crazy aunt is there instead, so you have to sleep in the garage. That's kind of what's going on there. But everyone just assumes it means an inn. And then we know that whenever we get there, obviously she gives birth when? That very night, right? Just providence of providence. That night's the night that she actually gives birth. Except again, that's not anywhere in the Bible. She might have been there for days or even weeks before she actually gives birth. But eventually she does give birth and uh, she gives birth because there's no room in the inn. Where is she? she's in a manger. And everyone thinks when they think of a manger, they think of some sort of a shed or a lean-to or something like that. That's not what a manger means. A manger is actually a feeding trough. That's where little baby Jesus is originally laid. And then we have uh, these nativity scenes. And in these nativity scenes that tell the story kind of graphically, pictorially of, uh, of Christmas, we have this idea that there is a light That is over the manger where little baby Jesus uh, lies. The problem with that is that the light didn't appear over the manger. The light actually appeared to the wise men. And the wise men were hundreds of miles away. They're wise men from the east. And they're hundreds of miles away. Which means that the wise men were never actually at the manger in the first place. Because I doubt that two-year-old Jesus is lying in a feeding trough. Right At some point they probably moved him out of the feeding trough. But we have this idea that, the, uh, that the, the, the wise men, the magi, were there at the manger. And everybody knows how many wise men there were, how many? Three. Everybody assumes there's three. Why do we assume that? Because there's three gifts, but there could have been four or five or a half dozen or a baker's dozen or any other form of dozen or whatever it might be. We don't know how many there were. Now, the reason that I tell you this is because our Christmas story, our understanding of Christmas has been so influenced by these assumptions that we make, these things that we've just simply accepted even though there's no actual authority behind them. They're not actually in Scripture. Even our Christmas carols uh, are kind of riddled with these presuppositions. Consider the line from the song, Away in a Manger. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus… How's it go? No crying He makes. Why would we assume that little baby Jesus doesn't cry? It's not sinful for a little baby to cry. If Jesus is 30 years old and he starts crying because Peter won't pass him a piece of fish, that's sinful. But for a little baby to cry, that's just natural. That's just human. It seems to imply that Jesus is not actually human. The reason that I mention all of this is because there is a danger as we're reading any text of Scripture to assume certain things that aren't actually there. That is no less true when it comes to our text this morning, there's a danger as we read this text from John chapter 1, verse 14, that we're going to make certain assumptions, that we're going to assume that when it talks about the Son of God, uh, the Son of God becoming a man, that maybe the way that he did that is because he, he divested himself of his godness. He becomes a man by ceasing to be God. That's one assumption that we could make. Or we could assume that in remaining God, he really doesn't become a man, he just kind of seems like a man. He just looks like a man or acts like a man, but he's really just God and not man. But both of those dangers, as we're going to see, are actually dangerous for us and, uh, and actually undercut our very faith. So I want to uh, pray for us and then dive in together that we can hopefully kind of reorient our minds and hearts around the truth of the incarnation as we prepare for uh, Christmas this year. I want to begin just to ask you to pray for yourself. That the Lord would give you uh, undivided affection and attention this morning, undistracted heart. And then would you pray that for us collectively, that the Lord would uh, give us a corporate sense that uh, we might behold the glory of His Word and the Word, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, would you pray for me that I would be faithful and bold and helpful? So Father, we bless you this morning because you are good. You're worthy of all of our praise and all of our affection and all glory. And we're grateful for the gift of the incarnation of your Son that the Word has become flesh. And so we glory and exult in that truth this morning. Because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, look at John 1.14, which says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I wanna begin with that first phrase there, and the Word became flesh. This is one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible. I would argue one of the most important phrases in all of human literature So I want to slowly walk through this in order to to help us understand what this does and what this doesn't mean because this is basically Christmas right here. If you understand these few words here in this phrase, you understand the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is this, that the word became flesh. Now, we're picking this up in verse 14, so we might have questions about who this Word is or what this Word is, but if you were uh, actually reading through the Gospel of John, you wouldn't have those questions because he has already uh, articulated that in verses 1 through 3, so let's look at those briefly. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made That was made. So you see here already these little uh, hints uh, of the Trinity here. That there is this sense of diversity in the Godhead where it says that the Word was with God. There's a distinction there that that, that it's almost like side by side. The Word is with God. So there's diversity, but there's also unity that's spoken of there because it says the Word was God. So the Word is with God and the Word is God. That's the uh, glory of the Trinity. There's unity and there's also diversity. There is this glorious mystery. And the use of the word, word, here in this passage and in uh, verses 1 through 3 is really interesting because you see a pattern of God throughout Scripture uh, using His Word uh, in, uh, in a number of different ways. You see it in creation. How is it that God creates? He speaks something into existence. That all things exist by virtue of God's what? His word. You also see it in the prophetic word that's given to Moses and to Isaiah and to Elijah and all of the other prophets. This word that beckons God's people to faith and to repentance. You see it in scripture. Right now we're reading what we call the word of God. It's his self-expression. This is self-revelation. So there's different ways that the word uses the word word word, not to use that word so many times, uh, there are different ways that it's used, but you see it most clearly here in the way that it's used here in John 1. We see it most clearly in God's Son. That's the word that John is referencing here. He's using the word as a, uh, as a symbol of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And that's really significant that he equates his Word with His Son, that's really significant because throughout Scripture, God not only reveals Himself through His Word, but He also accomplishes His will through His Word. So He restores, He heals, He redeems, He does all of these things through His Word. So Jesus is the embodiment, so the personification of all of that authority, all of that glory, all of that sovereignty, which is why the author of Hebrews says the following in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago, notice this, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But notice this contrast here with the word but, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. In other words, the Son of God is the decisive, definitive revelation of God to mankind. In the past, God has spoken in diverse ways. He's spoken through different prophets. He's spoken through the apostles. He's spoken through all of these sorts of ways. He's spoken through creation. But now His Son is the final word. It's, if you will, the divine mic drop. God has spoken and spoken and spoken, and then He drops the mic and says, I'm done this is my son. And this eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. Well, what does that mean? Well, at different times in history, you'll notice that there are different sort of discussions that rule uh, the day. And so if you're alive in, uh, in America in the, the late 19th century or so, the question of the day is whether or not all races are equal. The question of the day uh, revolves around the, the evils of American slavery. If you're in the late 1930s, the early 1940s, what's the question of the day? The rise of national uh, socialism. If you're in uh, a uh, subsequent to that, uh, just 20, 30, 40 years after that, what's the question? It's the competition between uh, capitalism and democracy versus communism Each different period of time kind of has these these issues that rise to the surface. Well, the question of what does it mean that the Word became flesh was the decisive, definitive question of the fourth and fifth centuries. This is what everyone was talking about. What's interesting, though, is that everyone who considered themselves a Christian, everyone who called themselves a Christian would agree with these words. They would say, yes, the Word became flesh. But not everyone agreed on what those words actually mean. They would agree on the words, but not actually the meaning behind the word. In particular, there were three men who had very different conceptions of what these words meant. Of what is meant by this phrase, the word became flesh. We talked about this in theological equipping a couple of years ago in a lesson called Christological heresies. So I'm going to summarize that. But if you're interested in that, you want to look more into the, the historical theology, then go back and listen to that. But first, you have a guy named Eutyches. Eutyches is a leader in Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, and Eutyches thought, and therefore he taught, that uh, when the Son of God became man. That basically what you have is that the divine nature and the human nature merge together to form this new nature, which is neither fully divine nor fully human. It creates this third new nature. Again, neither fully divine nor fully human. It's kind of like if you take the, uh, a male uh, donkey and a female horse and, and they breed, the offspring is called what? a mule. If you do it the other way and you do the, uh, a female donkey and a male horse, it's called a henny. But, uh, but anyway, it's called a mule. That's kind of what is going on here with Eutychianism, that Jesus, uh, by virtue of the union of His two natures, uh, is not fully divine nor fully human. He is instead this, this merged sort of third new nature. Next, you have a guy named uh, Nestorius, who has the unfortunate distinction of uh, probably not teaching the heresy that's associated with his name, but he at least laid the seeds for uh, uh, for this heresy by suggesting that there were two distinct persons when it came to Christ Jesus. You have a human Jesus and you have a divine Jesus. So when Jesus grew tired, guess which one that is? The human Jesus. When Jesus walks on water, guess which one that is? That's the divine Jesus. So uh, according to Nestorianism, you have these almost like schizophrenic Jesus, multiple personality sort of Jesus. Rather than one person with two natures, you instead have two distinct persons, human Jesus and divine Jesus. Last, you have a guy named Apollinarius, who's a teacher from Laodicea, who absolutely believed, as with these other guys, that the Word became flesh. But he thought that that meant that the divine is simply clothed in flesh. That Jesus has a human body, but he doesn't have a human mind. He doesn't have human emotions. He doesn't have a human soul. So basically it's just God dressed up in this huge uh, human skin suit so that he kind of appears to be a man, but he's not actually a man. Jesus' humanity is kind of like a disguise. So you have these, and you have other sort of confusions floating around And so the early church recognized there's a danger here, that if Jesus wasn't fully, truly human, well, then he can't fully, truly save humans. And that's a problem. They recognized that if he isn't truly, fully God, then he can't truly, fully reconcile us to God. He can't be the one mediator between God and man if he's not actually God or man. So what did the early church do? Well, the early church called together this ecumenical council. Uh, meaning that they invite uh, teachers and, uh, and pastors, elders, bishops from all over the empire to gather together at a place called Chalcedon in 451 AD. And they hammered out what's since been known as the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian Creed. Now, some people get instantly unnerved whenever you mention the idea of some sort of church creed. You might have heard silly things like, I believe no creed but the Bible. You ever heard that? What's the problem with that? Number one, it's a creed, right? Number two, it isn't even in the Bible, right? So we shouldn't be those who make those sort of silly, uh, inconsistent, illogical, uh, frankly ignorant sort of statements because creeds are actually a really good thing, right? Creeds are, are, are intended to be good things for us. How so? Because they provide boundaries for our beliefs. They give us boundaries and borders and say Christians do not cross beyond this particular point. Boundaries are a really good thing for us in a lot of areas, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to faith and theology. Anyone ever jump on a trampoline? You can be honest, right? All right. You ever jump on a trampoline? When I was a kid, uh, you would jump on a trampoline all day long, and how would you know when it was time to quit jumping? when someone fell off and broke their arm, right? That's the only way that you would ever know. It's just you and your friends and you're jumping and you're looking at each other and you're like, one of us is gonna have to do this. That's the only way we know. Then sometime in the late 90s, uh, when I'm already in my 20s or something like that, uh, then someone decides it's a good idea to go ahead and let's create a net that goes around that so that now you can accomplish two things. One, you can jump and have fun and two, you cannot die, right? which is a really good thing. That's kind of what creeds are for us. They allow us to jump on the trampoline of theology without falling off and breaking our arms or breaking our necks or something like, uh, like that. So these teachers gather together uh, from around the empire at Chalcedon in 451 AD and they hammer out what's called the Chalcedonian definition uh, or the Chalcedonian Creed. It's pretty short, so I wanna read it to you Because if you consider yourself a Christian, or if you want to know what Christians believe when it comes to Christology, the doctrine of uh, of Christ, this is it. This is your creed if you are a Christian. This is an expression of what you believe by virtue of the fact that you call yourself a Christian. This is what Christians believe about Christ. So, this is from, again, the Chalcedonian definition, 451 AD. Therefore, Following the Holy Fathers, they're not just making this up, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regard his uh, Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. This is what it means that the Word became flesh. It doesn't mean that the Son of God gave up His deity or divested Himself of His divinity. It doesn't mean that became schizophrenic Jesus or Dr. Jekyll and Mister Hyde Jesus. Sometimes He's divine and sometimes He's human. It doesn't mean that became some half uh, God, half man creature that's neither fully God nor fully man, like Thor or Wonder Woman or something. It doesn't mean that he just appeared to be like a man, that he's just God wearing this big man suit. It means that the Son of God became a man such that he is one person with two distinct natures. He's truly and fully human, and he's truly and fully divine. We call this the hypostatic union, the union of Christ's two hypostases, his two natures. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining God, he became man. That's what it means when we say the word became flesh. Let's keep going. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, some people love camping. Some people hate camping. You probably find yourself in one of those camps, or maybe you're somewhere in between where you tolerate it, but you don't really love it or hate it. Zach hates camping. He's talked about that a number of times, but I love it. I love camping. I love campfires. I love eating uh, chili out of a can. I love the stars at night. I love sleeping in a tent. I love uh, mountains and West Texas silence and all of these sorts of things. But one of the things that I really love about camping is that it's somewhat temporary, right? I wouldn't want to live there. I like the fact that I get to shower. I like the fact that I get to sleep in a bed. I like the fact that whenever I need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I don't have to walk 100 yards or something like that. So I like camping, but I like the fact that it's temporary. A, A tent is a good place to temporarily stay. It's not a good place for a permanent dwelling. Here's why I mentioned that. Because throughout the Old Testament, God's presence was symbolized by a tent. That's the way that God symbolized his presence throughout the beginning of the uh, Old Testament. We call this the tent or the tabernacle of meeting. If you've heard the word uh, tabernacle, it's the same as the word for a tent. Before Solomon builds the temple, God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, and thus God's glory resided in a tabernacle, in this temporary shelter, in a tent. And that's really important because the language that's used in this passage here in John uh, refers to a tent. The phrase that he dwelt among us could be translated, uh, in fact, your translation might say tabernacled among us. The word there is a word for a tent. Here's why that's so fascinating because the story of the Bible, the story of scripture, the story of creation, the story of God's uh, history of dealing with his people is the story of God dwelling among his people. The Bible begins with creation and it begins in a garden and what's happening in that garden is God is dwelling among his people. Unencumbered, unfettered, God is dwelling among his people But very soon in that story, there is the introduction of sin. And so God, a holy God, can no longer dwell among his unholy people. But throughout the Old Testament, you see these little hints. You see these little glimmers. You see these little bitty uh, uh, whispers of places where heaven and earth overlap. Where man uh, can approach God. Now, God is omnipresent, meaning that He is everywhere. In a sense, He's also nowhere because God is not actually spatial. But God is omnipresent. His his power, His authority can be exercised uh, everywhere. And yet, His presence is experienced or expressed in particular places more directly and more powerfully. Again, we see that in the tabernacle and the wilderness and then in the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, if you're reading in the Old Testament the, descri- the, the description or the depiction of the temple, what's really interesting is all of the imagery of a garden. Why is that? Because the temple is intended to be a little microcosm to push us back so that we would think back to the garden. What's the point of the temple? God dwelling among men. Where did God once dwell with men? In the temple. That's why there's all this floral imagery and so forth in the creation of the temple But anyway, you have this temple, and God is said to dwell there among his people, uh, Israel. The problem with that, though, is that the temple is destroyed. It's destroyed by the Babylonians around 586 BC. It's eventually rebuilt, as you read in the book of Ezra, and then it's greatly expanded and beautified in uh, King Herod's day, only to be destroyed again in 70 AD by the Romans. What does that have to do with Jesus in John 1.14? Well, one chapter later, if we were to continue reading in the Gospel of John, one chapter later, in chapter 2, John will write this. The Jews then said to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. Speaking of Herod's renovations. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So John is here using this imagery of the temple or the tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth overlap, the place where God and man dwell together. And he's saying that in the God-man, Jesus Christ, we have seen a fulfillment of this imagery. Which is why if you're reading uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say this in Matthew 12, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. In other words, Jesus himself now is our temple. The temple is the shadow of the, the physical temple is a shadow of the reality that Jesus fulfills, which signifies for us two different truths. First, that Jesus is the final and sufficient sacrifice for sin. What happened in the temple was that day after day after day, animal after animal after animal was slaughtered to make atonement for sin. The fact that there is no longer a standing temple signifies the fact that a sacrifice has already been made which has completely satisfied that requirement. That's the first thing that this symbolizes. Not only that, though, but Christ as our uh, temple also symbolizes the fact that he now is where heaven and earth overlap, where God and man are reconciled because he himself is the God-man. Forever united, we see the humanity and the deity united in Christ. And this is a promise, a down payment of the fact that God will again dwell among his people. If you kept reading all the way to the end of the Bible, you would get to another book that's written by John uh, to, in the book of uh, Revelation, and you read of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21.3 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God And if you keep reading and you read the illustrations, the imagery of this new heavens and new earth, you would again see garden imagery. And you get to verses 22 through 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us as a sacrifice for our sin and as a preview of our eternal hope of God and man dwelling together. Let's keep going. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Now there are certain stories from the Old Testament that I love just because they're crazy, All right? They're true, but they are also crazy, one of my favorites is when this, uh, this flock of kids mock the prophet Elisha. Why do they mock him? For being bald. And what does Elisha do? He calls down she-bears from the hills and they maul the kids. I love that story because it's so crazy. It's also why I never make fun of bald people, right? There are other stories that I love, not because they're so crazy, but because they're so central to the, uh, the storyline of Scripture. One of those examples is from Exodus 33. The Israelites had just made the golden calf, and, uh, and God had said because of their sin that he would no longer dwell among the nation, which would have been a curse for them because that was what made Israel distinct, was the fact that God would dwell among them. So this context is really important in light of what we've just read in John Uh, that God dwells among his people in Jesus. But back to Exodus, in Exodus 33, God says he will not dwell among his people. And so Moses intercedes for the people. And let's pick up the story in verse 17 of Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. He hears the intercession of Moses. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that's the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, even Moses, this great prophet and leader of God's people, didn't see God fully. He saw hints of a glimmer of the fringes, of the edges of the other side of God's glory. And yet in Christ we see the fullness of the glory of God manifest. As Colossians will say, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Or the author of Hebrews in chapter one, he is the image of the glory of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So in Christ, we see the glory of God. We behold the glory of God. So what is glory? I I would imagine if you're like me, uh, glory is a word that you just associate with God. It's a word that we use all the time. It's a word that all of us would recognize, and yet how many of us could actually define the word glory? If someone asked you to define the word glory, you would probably struggle. You would think of things like light, or maybe uh, you would think of angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. But to actually define the term can be really difficult. And that's really unfortunate because glory is a very big deal in Scripture. It's why you exist. It's what God loves more than anything. It's your ultimate hope for life and joy and all kinds of good things. So what is glory? You might say that God's glory is the public manifestation of His infinite, intrinsic worth. Let me read that again. God's glory is the public manifestation of His infinite, intrinsic worth worth. It's infinite. There are no limits. As with God himself, there are no limits. As God is infinite, so is his glory. It's intrinsic. In other words, whether we recognize it or not, God is inherently glorious. He doesn't need us to behold or believe this truth. He is intrinsically, innately, inherently glorious, but it's intended to be publicly manifest. Through creation, through redemption, and then supremely through Jesus. In him we see the glory of the invisible God. Let's keep, uh, let's keep going. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father. Now if you're reading from, uh, from some other translations, some other versions, instead of just the phrase "only son," you'll actually see the phrase the only begotten Son which I actually like as a better translation. That's actually a better translation uh, of the Greek, but for whatever reason, the ESV has left it out. Uh, but begotten is this sort of weird word. It's another word of Christianese, right? Uh, you're talking to someone, they don't ask you, how many children hast thou begotten? Right? That's not something that we would typically say. We typically only use the word begotten when we're quoting Tim Tebow, quoting John 3.16 or something. Begotten is this sort of strange word, so what does it mean? Well, we need to do a bit of theology there. We talked before about uh, sort of hints of the, the Trinity there in John 1, but the classical doctrine of the Trinity affirms that there is one God, but within the one undivided being of God, there are actually three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It also affirms that what distinguishes these three persons are that they have distinct roles, but also, more importantly, they have distinct relationships. Their relations to each other are distinct. In particular, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father, or from the Father and the Son. So that's the uh, uniqueness of each member of the Trinity. As a parent. Begets or begats a child, so God, uh, the Father, has begotten God, the Son. Now there's a problem here, as with all human analogies, there's a a caution and a potential misunderstanding for us to avoid. When I begat my son, Canon, what happened? Well, he comes into existence in that uh, in that moment. He comes into being. He did not exist, and then he existed. And so we might be tempted to think of the son's begottenness kind of like that, that at some point he didn't exist and then all of a sudden he existed. All of a sudden God begot him. So is that what happens here? Is that, uh, does the son of God's begottenness mean that he came into being at some point? Well, that's what a guy named Arius thought. Earlier we mentioned a number of false teachers in the early church. Well, Arius was one of the absolute worst false teachers in the early church. He thought that Jesus was a created being. His famous phrase was, there was once when he was not. There was once when he, that's Jesus, was not. In other words, the Son of God is not eternal, but had a beginning at some point in time or even before time itself. For Arius, Jesus is like God, but he's not actually God. He's not eternal So for Arius, the word begotten meant created or made. Those were kind of synonymous. So about 100 years before the church had gathered at Chalcedon, the early church uh, gathered at Nicaea to repudiate Arius. By the way, there's an early uh, church legend of uh, of St. Nicholas, uh, who is kind of the origin of our Santa Claus story, that St. Nicholas punched the heretic Arius at Nicaea which is a really cool story, but it probably didn't happen, unfortunately. But what did happen there was that the church gathered together and saw the danger of what Arius said. Recognized that if Jesus isn't actually fully God, then you aren't actually fully saved, and that's a big deal. And so they actually repudiated uh, Arianism and said that the Son is eternally begotten, but that begottenness doesn't mean created or made. Here's a quote from uh, from them there at uh, Nicaea. It so we believe in one uh, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father. That's what begottenness means. He's of the same essence as the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He's not like God, he is God. He's begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. In other words, whatever it means to be God Jesus shares in that. And the Son is begotten of the Father, meaning that He originates in the Father, but He does so eternally. There is no beginning of the Son. We call this the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. He is eternally generated from the Father. And that's only true of Him. He is the only begotten. You and I, if we love and trust Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God in some sense, but not in the same way that the Son is. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption, as we've been talking about in 1 John, but Jesus is the Son of God by nature. Now, some of you may be thinking around this point, this seems way too heady. This is way too academic. This is way too theological. Why does this really matter? Why why do we have to talk about all this theology? Why can't we just love Jesus? There's a number of reasons why this is important. The first one is, is because the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. Even saying that we want to love Jesus assumes that we answer the question of who Jesus is. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus man? Is it the Jesus that, the, uh, that uh, Muslims might uh, revere? Is it the, the Jesus that the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses might proclaim? Who is this Jesus? Is it the Jesus just that culture would say is a prophet or a good teacher? Who is this Jesus that you want to love? I agree with you. Just love Jesus. Now tell me who Jesus is. The second reason this matters is because, as we've mentioned, if Jesus isn't fully God, if Jesus isn't truly God, then you are not fully and truly saved because only God can save you. If Jesus isn't fully human, the same thing is true. Another reason that this is important is because the doctrine of the Trinity is literally the doctrine which most distinguishes uh, us from other religions. It is the doctrine which most unites all Christians. All Christians throughout all time have held to uh, the Trinity, whereas we have vast differences of opinion uh, regarding other issues between Catholics and uh, Greek Orthodox, between us and other denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, whatever it might be, every branch of Christianity has always held to Trinitarianism. But it's what most distinguishes us from other world religions and from the cults. Both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonisms would actually be something very close to Arianism. But finally, this matters because throughout the Bible, we see that there's a hard and fast division between creator and created. Throughout the Old Testament, God says that he alone belongs above the line of creation. Let's put that slide up here. So imagine, if you will, you have this line and you have creator and then you have creation. Throughout the Old Testament, to worship anything that's below that line is idolatry. That's blasphemy. That is sin. God and God alone deserves all of our worship, thus to worship anything below the line is inappropriate. So let me ask you this, where does the Son of God belong? Where would Arius put him? Arius would put him below the line, but the early church recognized that he has to be above the line. Why does he have to be above the line? In order for salvation to be holy and fully of and from and through and by God. Salvation is not accomplished by creation or creatures reaching up to their creator. Salvation is accomplished by God, the creator, condescending to his creatures. That the Son of God incarnates. He comes down for us in our salvation. That the Spirit of God indwells his people. He comes down for us in our salvation. He comes down below the line, but he himself belongs above the line. So where you put the Son and by implication where you put the Spirit, whether you view them as being God or being somewhat like God, means everything. In other words, this matters because if you get this wrong, you are an idolater. You are a blasphemer. But if the Son of God is Himself God, then it's good and right to worship Him. To Him be the glory. Speaking of the glory, let's keep going. Last phrase here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I mentioned earlier that this passage alludes back to Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see God's glory and he sees but the fringes of it. Well, if you were to keep reading from Exodus 33, you get to the end of Exodus 33, you begin Exodus 34 and you would come to verse 6. Which says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that combination of steadfast love and faithfulness that you see there saturates the Old Testament. Psalm twenty-five, ten: all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 57:10 for your steadfast love is great to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds what does this have to do with John 1:14 well interestingly enough the Hebrew terms translated as steadfast love and faithfulness are often rendered in Greek as grace and truth why truth truth and faithfulness seem to be somewhat different well because God is true to his word meaning that he is faithful to his promises. So you see how truth and faithfulness kind of overlap there. As Jesus is the final revelation of the Word of God, so is the he, he is the infallible expression of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, the grace of God and the truth of God. His glory is the revelation of the fullness of divine grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's why this is all important and what this has to do with Christmas. I've gotten... I don't know, a lot of Christmas presents in my life. kind of seems like a brag or something, but I'm 41, so this is my 42nd Christmas. Uh, I've gotten a lot of presents. Some of those I remember, some of them I don't remember. I remember whenever I was uh, maybe uh, six or seven or so, I got this sweet Superman bike. You'd press a button and it would play the Superman theme when you rode down the street. I remember uh, at one point I got this photon laser tag set I remember getting a lot of Hardy Boys books whenever I was a kid. Uh, A couple of years ago, my in-laws gave me a truck. That's a pretty cool gift, all right? Here's the problem with all of those gifts. Every single one of them will eventually wear out. I have no idea where that Superman bike is. I wish I had it. I have no idea where my Hardy Boys books are. My truck will eventually break down. I certainly broke my photon laser tag set. Everything that is created, everything that's below that line eventually wears out, but Jesus doesn't. He is eternal. He is God, but he's also man. He belongs above the line, but he lived below the line for us and for our salvation, and he is the perfect manifestation of the faithfulness of God. Last week in 1 John, we saw that the death of Christ is the answer to the question, how do I really know that God loves me? Is it because I just feel like he loves me? Well, no. No. Your feelings are fickle. Is it because I'm healthy or wealthy? No, that's no sure sign. There are a lot of uh, absolute heretics. There are uh, false teachers. There are uh, complete agnostics or atheists who are healthy and wealthy. That's no sure sign either. So how do I know? How do I know that He really loves me? That's a quote, Whitney Houston. How do you know because Christ died for you. That's how you know. We don't look at your circumstances. You don't look at your circumstances to play he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You look at the cross. So this now uh, so now this week we ask the question, how do you know that God is faithful? I've had people that promised me gifts that never actually gave those gifts. How do I know that God's not like that? How do I know that God's promises won't actually falter? How do I know that the grace that I find today will be there tomorrow and the day after and the day after for an eternity of days? How do I know that God's promises are certain and sure? The answer to that question is Advent, the coming of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. It proves not only the love of God, but also the faithfulness of God, that He always keeps His promises, that Christ is the fullness of the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. The grace and truth of God, which means that he who came in the flesh will come again in the flesh and will make all things new and we will dwell among his people forever. That's our hope, that the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the demonstration of God's glory, it's the manifestation of his grace and truth, and it's the actualization of the promise that God will dwell among his people. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's what we celebrate. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank You for uh, the opportunity for us to reflect in a sense. The entire year is oriented around the reality of the incarnation. That is our hope not only In December, that is our hope, in January, in April, in October, every single day of our life is grace from you because of the reality of the Incarnation, and so we want to celebrate that. We want to know what it means that the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we want to taste a bit of the glory of your Son rightly so that we might worship Him rightly. And so... I'm grateful for your Word. I pray that it would reorient our heart. If there were uh, in any of our minds or hearts any false understandings or speculations as it relates to the Son of God, that you would dispel those and give us true and unfettered faith. I pray these things because you're a good Father who gives good gifts, so we ask in Christ's name. Amen.